Warning, this show may contain adult content, language, and humor and is intended for mature audiences. If that's not you, please stop listening now. Nothing you hear on Sex and Science Hour is intended as medical advice, financial advice, legal advice, therapy, or really anything other than entertainment. Please take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Oh, and if you're hearing us on an affiliate network, the ideas and views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the network you're listening on or of any sponsors or affiliate products you might hear about on the show. Now that all that's out of the way, let's start the show. This is Sex and Science Hour with Brian Sovereign and Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Get your freak on. Welcome to another edition of Sex and Science Hour, folks. Thanks for joining us. I think we might have some new listeners coming in this week because we just got a big bump from one of our appearances on another, another podcast. We appeared on another podcast? Yeah, I know. There's other podcasts out there. Can you believe the it? You I thought Sex about? and Science Hour was the only one. But oh, no, there's some, I know the appearance There's a made. few other podcasts out All right, there yes. in the world. Yes, this is another podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so if you're just joining us, welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Sex and Science Hour. Welcome it to is the Freak a, Show. Yeah, welcome to the Freak Show. It is exactly what the title suggests, which is about an hour, maybe usually a little bit more, of uh, Sex and Science Talk. So... Let's let's get into it, right? Yeah, let's do it. Oh, and by the way, this is our last show of 2016. Now, I think a lot of people are excited for the sort of idea of the clean slate of the new year of 2016 sure. being over and 2017 beginning. I, I feel, you know, even though basically every day is a new year, if you really think about it, it is like a new year from a year ago. But <laughs> there's something about the arbitrary date of December 31st slash January 1st that it, it feels like something new is beginning when the calendar rolls over to the next year. I don't think it's that arbitrary. I mean, it's it's based on, you know, there's there's been festivals for, mm-hmm. you know, since the beginning of humanity, as far as we can tell, you know, sure. as, as soon as they realize that there's a time where the days get shorter and then suddenly they start getting longer again. And that fits right in with, you know, just about the new year. So, like, if you have that eight days of celebration after the winter solstice, it chalks up to the new year. So I think that there's, I think it's a very long standing, not long enough to be like a part of our, you know, genetic makeup or anything, but it it sits in every strand of culture that humanity experiences so it's not yeah. so arbitrary i mean a year is a rhythm so you know right. moving into the next cycle of a year is i guess maybe cause for celebration or just mar- cause for marking it as like a milestone like hey i've lived another year we've got another trip around the sun isn't that great yeah and uh, it is great so every year i'm alive i'm grateful and um you know hope i get to be old and have the problems of being old <laughs> here's <laughs> <You know? laughs> to 2017 here's to 2017 all right not to get all sappy, but I think a lot of people, this is the time when a lot of people also reflect on the previous year and what they've done right and wrong and what they want to change in the following year. Sure. A lot of people go on diets around this time of year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Gyms make all their money right now because they don't make it the rest of the year. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Everybody, every other business makes their money on Black Friday, but gyms, I think, go into the black in January yeah. when everybody joins the gym. And, and a lot of people go for a week. Or, but you know what? At least they're trying, right? Sure. But I think also people start to evaluate, like, well, you know, 
what what can I do to make 2017 my year and to take back the power, I guess, to, to, to stop living my life in ways that other people want me to live and live in a way that's better for me, that I want to listen to my inner voice about what I really want. Yeah. And um, one of the things that people start to think about, and I started to think about this sometimes, is uh, the idea of people pleasing. And so I've got an article about that, which I thought was good for this show. So do you want to get into it? Yes, because this is a very, very serious and much it need be oft discussed. Subject, yes, in my opinion, that's right. I I think you'll find on this show that we are into the virtue of selfishness. You know, like there's nothing wrong with standing up for yourself, being your own best friend, Ooh, and making signal that virtue, making baby. sure. <laughs> what what virtue am I signaling? Selfishness, that's but that's the not best a virtue one. to most people. They don't consider it a no, virtue, right. but but I think it is. And I mean, I there's some philosophers that agree with me, like Ayn Rand and Nathaniel Brandon, but like. You know, it's if you don't stand up for yourself and make sure that your own needs get met in life, no one else is going to do it for you. Yes. And it's not a virtue to sacrifice yourself and be miserable uh, for what? For so that other people will like you or so that you think you're you're helping other people, but you can't help yourself. No, that doesn't make any sense. Sacrifice is the anti-virtue, in my opinion. <laughs> All right. Well, let's stop talking about what's a virtue and what's not. And get right. into this article here, because this is from uh, greatergood.berkeley.edu. The greater good, the science of a meaningful life, they say. So they're I guess they're doing scientific uh, studies about happiness. So why it doesn't pay to be a people pleaser by Christine Carter. People ask me all the time, says Christine, what the secret to happiness is. If you had to pick just one thing, they wonder, what would be the most important thing for leading a happy life? Ten years ago, I would have told you a regular gratitude practice was the most important thing. And while that's still my favorite instant happiness booster, my answer has changed. And gratitude practice, they're just talking about like, you know, thinking about the things you're grateful for. Like we just did. We said, I'm grateful every year I'm alive, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and there's lots of things you can think of like that where you realize, hey, I have a lot of great things in my life if you if you really start to think of it and it makes you feel happier. So um, she says, 10 years ago, I would have told you a regular gratitude practice was the most important thing for happiness. And while that is still my favorite instant happiness booster, my answer has changed. I believe that the most important thing for happiness is living truthfully. Here's the specific advice I recently gave to my kids. Live with total integrity. Be transparent, honest, and authentic. Do not ever waver from this. White lies and false smiles quickly snowball into a life lived out of alignment. It's better to be yourself and risk having people not like you than to suffer the stress and tension that comes from pretending to be someone you're not, or pretending to like something that you don't. I promise you, pretending will rob you of joy. Now, I, I really like that because, yeah, it's true. When you live according to what you think other people want you to do— you end up losing yourself and you feel empty because your needs and preferences and values are not being lived. Yeah, absolutely. And and like, what's the point of all that? And now when they say be honest and transparent and authentic, that doesn't mean be nice. You know, a lot of people think being nice is a good thing. And sure, it's good to be kind to other people. It's good to be compassionate towards other people. But being nice often often is a loaded term that comes with baggage. And the baggage is nice means sacrificing our own needs to do what other people think we want us to do or they want us to do. Yeah. You know, there's a great book uh, by a guy, Kelly Bryson, that I, I, the title of the book really says the whole yeah. story, but it's, it's an X, the, the entire read is phenomenal. And it's a, uh, don't be nice, be real. Right. And, and I, I, I mean, that's the greatest kindness you can give anyone is to, you know, 
go up to them and, and just be who you are, right? To, say, to tell them the truth, yeah. yeah no I, subterfuge, I you know, no no hidden agendas, you know, nothing. Just just being you. Yeah, and a lot of people even think of like if they're actually living authentically, then they're not going to be nice. So like they have trouble squaring away the well. How can you be kind to other people but still stand up for your own needs? And that's something that I think all of us have to figure out. So let's read a little bit more of this here. She says, I've spent the better part of my life as a people pleaser, trying to meet other people's expectations, trying to keep everyone happy and liking me. But when we're trying to please others, we usually live out of sync with our own wants and needs. It's not that bad to be thinking of others. It's pleasing others. It's not the same as, oh, sorry, <laughs> it's not that it's bad to be thinking of others. It's that pleasing others is not the same thing as helping others. People-pleasing, in my extensive personal experience, is a process of guessing what other people want or what will make them think favorably of us, and then acting accordingly. It's often subtle and usually an unconscious attempt at manipulating other people's perceptions of us. Anytime we pretend to be with some... Anytime we pretend to be or feel something that we aren't, we're out of integrity with ourselves. And anytime we're doing something that's more about influencing what other people think of us than it is about authentically expressing ourselves, even something as simple as a Facebook post that makes it seem like we're having a better day than we actually are, we end up out of integrity with ourselves. Being out of integrity has pretty serious consequences for our happiness and for our relationships. Here's what happens when we aren't being authentic. So do you have anything to add? We can stop. This is sort of like a listicle. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I agree with what's being said here. I think there's a difference maybe even, and this is probably just splitting hairs in terms, there's a difference in, you know, pleasing and appeasing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to please somebody else, you know, as long as you're not sacrificing your own needs. Mm -hmm. But when you get to appeasing others to like, you know, just trying to make peace and all that, you know, I, I think that that really becomes problematic. And a lot of people can, I mean, there's times where maybe you want to do that. But again, when it gets to the point to where it might not actually be helpful to the situation, you know, maybe it's just helpful to your own, in your own head. I mean, it's tough. Like you want to do these things or, I mean, you know, who wants a stressful life, right? Yeah. Nobody and, wants a lot of conflict, right? With other people and people want other people to like them, right. but it's when your sense of worth comes from other people's approval, then it becomes a problem because then if you don't have other people's approval, you feel incredibly bad about yourself. And I think we all have to learn that we have worth and we have value as people, whether or not other people like us, you know? <laughs> oh, sure. I mean, and they as... might not always like us, but that just means we're living according to our authentic selves. Yeah. I mean, you're as much a human and as much an individual if you're alone on an island as you are in the middle of New York City. I mean, it, you know, it, right. it, it doesn't really change. In fact, you know, I saw a funny, I, I don't necessarily usually like bringing these things up on a podcast, but I saw a funny meme earlier where it's this guy and he just has a little word bubble next to him and he says, always seek the approval of others. It fills the emptiness inside you. It also makes the emptiness larger so it can hold more approval. <laughs> I just, I think that, oh my God, that's funny. <laughs> I just think, I mean, it just, it says, it says it right there, you know, like that you're never really going to, I mean, not to get, it's not a woo woo thing or, or anything, but if you're not you, like what really is inside you, you know, it, it's not you, you literally are empty inside. I mean, or it's just other people, mm -hmm. you know, other, other lives and all that. Uh, yeah, but you know, I gotta admit it really is tough. And I understand that people want maybe the short term relief of, you know, other people giving them a, a smile or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and to some degree there's a truth to it. I mean, you know, the happiness is often a very fleeting thing. You know, I mean, or at least it, it can be, you know, more often than not. And, 
yeah, you know, pleasing somebody in the short term feel might feel good, you know, but then long term, especially really long term, which is the way I think, uh, you know, it's beneficial for most people to think, you, you know, there's nothing of you left. I mean, it's over. Like, mm-hmm. like what did you even do with your life? <laughs> right. Exactly. So getting back to the article, what happens when we don't live authentically? Well, number one, we don't actually fool anyone. Say you're at work, she says, and you're doing your best to put on a happy face, even though your home life is feeling shaky. You may not want to reveal to your work friends that you and your significant other had a major fight this weekend, but you pretend that you're okay and you're not. You'll actually probably make other people around you feel worse, too. Why? Well, we humans aren't actually very good at hiding how we're feeling. We exhibit micro-expressions. Is that like microaggressions? It's micro expressions. <laughs> Boy, there's micro everything. There's micro everything. I heard micro cheating this weekend. <laughs> okay. Your girlfriend is micro cheating on you, like cheating on you in little ways. Can you believe that? Because you can love people in slices. Yeah, right. <laughs> we exhibit micro expressions that the people we are with might not know that they're registering, but they trigger mirror neurons. So a little part of their brain thinks that they're feeling our negative feelings. So basically what she's saying is that there's science that backs this up. But basically, when people are sad, they can't really hide it. Or when they're feeling something, you can't really just put on a happy face and hide it because other people will pick up on it. Our brains are very attuned to the way other people are feeling. And we pick up on how other people are feeling, sometimes not even on a conscious level. And then we start to feel that way, too. And we reflect how they're feeling. Yeah, you know, well, or if you want to keep going with the list, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to share something. I mean, just kind of a it's sort of an opinion. Uh, But, you know, when when you have, say, parents that like a marriage that Mm -hmm. is falling apart. Yeah. And I know a lot of parents think the best thing to do is to is to stay together for the children. Right. Oh, yeah. How many times have you heard that? Right. And, you know, and I have to say, personally, I completely disagree with that because of this very reason is that yeah, the, the children always know that something's up, that their parents are fighting. Yeah, that they're fighting and or then that it's not that the love's not there, whatever it is. I mean, all these little micro expressions, as they call it. Here, yes. You know, they They'll know pick, something's not right. Yeah, because kids are so smart. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're incredibly smart. They're often smarter than adults. And and also staying together for the kids, quote unquote, it, like. It, it probably doesn't hurt less when you eventually get divorced when they're 18 or whatever. Yeah. But also it models for them self-sacrifice. Exactly. It models that you're supposed to, well, even if you're not happy in a situation, you're supposed to, what, stay with it for the sake of someone else's happiness. Right. And, the, the, you know, the, everybody's situation's unique. It, like, you have to decide what's best for you. But I'm just saying, like, that is a lesson that can come out of marriages where the parents stay together, quote, for the kids. Yeah, I mean, and, and effectively, kids see, okay, you know, they, they assume that relationships are tied in with unhappiness, and maybe they become, you know, serial, I don't know what, what term you would call that. Their template is off. Their template's off. your parents' relationship is often your template for your future relationships. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a really problematic thing to get out there. So I think that's a very, very uh, uh, salient point to, to bring up. Right, right on. Okay, so number two thing that happens when we don't live authentically, we find it harder to focus. Pretending takes a huge conscious effort. Oh, yeah, all kinds of lying and pretending take a huge conscious effort. It's an act of self-control that drains your brain of its power to focus and do deep work. That's because performing or pretending to be or feel something that you're not requires tremendous willpower. 
tons of research suggests that our ability to repeatedly exert our self-control is actually quite limited. It's like a muscle that tires out and can no longer perform at its peak strength after a workout. Our self-control is diminished by previous efforts at control, even if those efforts take place in a totally different realm. So that little fib at the water cooler you're told in order to make yourself seem happier than you are is going to make it hard for you to focus later that afternoon. So yeah, what they're saying is like, it just takes a, a lot of effort to put up a front. And when you're trying to live in a way that you don't really that doesn't align with how you really feel inside it's exhausting and that's i think that's totally true yeah i mean just think if you're pretending i mean or you know maybe it turns into a lie or something like how often do you have to like remember to keep that up oh yeah and that becomes a huge stress Mm -hmm. i mean just living honestly relieves all kinds of stress (laughs) it's way easier right i mean you know there's there's such a mental you know stone being dropped Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's really great And number three, you'll become more stressed and anxious. Let's just call it like it is. Pretending to be or feel something that you don't, even if it's a small thing, even if it's relatively meaningless, and even if it's meant to protect someone else, is a lie. And lying, even if we do it a lot or we're good at it, is very stressful to our brains and bodies. Exactly. The polygraph test depends on this. Uh, Oh, the polygraph test depends on this. Lie detectors don't actually detect lies, but rather they detect the subconscious stress and fear that lying causes. These tests sense changes in our skin's electricity, pulse rate, and breathing, and they also detect when someone's vocal pitch has changed in a nearly imperceptible way, a consequence of tension in the body that tightens the vocal cords. The psychological changes that lie detectors sense are caused by glucocorticoids, hormones that are released during a stress response. And as you well know, stress hormones are bad news for your health and happiness in the long run. Research shows that people who are given instructions for how to lie less in their day-to-day lives are actually able to lie less, and when they do, their physical health improves. For example, they report less trouble sleeping, less tension, fewer headaches, and fewer sore throats. These improvements in health are likely caused by the relative absence of stress response. And that's not all. When the people in the above study lied less, they also reported improvements in their relationships and less anxiety. We don't lie or pretend or perform all the time, of course, but when we do, it's important to see the consequences. Increased stress, decreased willpower, impaired relationships. Although we might actually be trying to feel better by putting on a happy face for others, pretending always backfires in the end. Living inauthentically makes life hard and cuts us off from our sweet spot, the place where we have both ease and power. Great article. Yeah, absolutely. I I have nothing to disagree with there. Yep. I love it. All right. Well, <laughs> we only have a few minutes left in this segment, but um, I've had this article too. Um, while you're thinking about people pleasing, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to think about adjusting the time that you start your work every day. Oh, man. <laughs> because there's a study that says that, what? Oh, this is like the wrong article that I opened up. Um, it says well, what did- pe- people are living like caged animals in, in tiny homes. No, that was not the article I wanted to pull <laughs> up. It was, okay, it's this one. Starting work before 10 a.m. isn't just soul crushing. This scientist says it's equivalent to torture by Tyler wow. Fife from the Plaid Zebra. It's 9 a.m. and under the cheap hue of white fluorescent lights, a daily force for workforce of catapults leptic creatures crane their necks over an Excel spreadsheet. According to Dr. Paul Kelly of Oxford University, this is what society's most prevalent form of torture looks like. Kelly and a research team at the Sleep and Circadian Institute have confirmed something that crossed everyone's mind as they watched someone helplessly nod off in an early morning public transit. A 9 a.m. start is just fucking inhuman. That's because because the human body runs on biological timers. They're called circadian rhythms, and they're genetically programmed cycles that regulate human energy levels, brainwave activity, and hormone 
function. As Dr. Kelly puts it in an interview, we cannot change our 24-hour rhythms. You cannot learn to get up at a certain time. Your liver and your heart have different patterns, and you're asking them to shift two or three hours. This is because the natural human rhythms evolved around sunlight, not the business strategies of the nation's employers. In the late 18th century, the eight-hour workday was designed to maximize efficiency, but factory owners didn't consider the body's natural clock. They only thought about a 24-7 production schedule. And though it may have appeared to maximize increasingly repetitive, numbing factory work, uh, the rise of technology and increasing number of jobs where you actually have to think, the 9 a.m. start time is completely backfiring. We've got a sleep-deprived society, Kelly told the British Science Festival. His prescription was to move start times towards 10 a.m. to test his theory that when he moved... Uh, to test his theory, he moved the start time of a British school forward from 8.30 a.m. to 10 a.m. He wasn't surprised when he saw grades improve by an average of 19%. That's a pretty big improvement. <laughs> um, companies who are forcing workers to start earlier than 10 a.m. are placing major stress on the emotional and physical systems of their employees and effectively contributing to long-term health problems and number of sick days. The social prevalence of sleep deprivation is probably why the average American consumes 3.1 cups of coffee a day. That's $40 billion a year spent annually by Americans to prevent drool from dripping onto their keyboard. (laughs) So I think it's a great idea. If you're able to and you can start work later when you feel naturally more awake, go for it. Do it. Of course, not everybody has that luxury, but maybe we'll get back into it. Maybe we'll get back into it, um, but maybe that article will help people think. And if you like to think, I would encourage you to subscribe to the Sex and Science Hour podcast feed so you never miss an episode of our show. Hopefully, we're very intellectually stimulating. And even if you do have to get up early for work, you can listen to our show and have some company while you're at it and a little bit of food for your brain. All of our info is on our website, which is sexandsciencehour.com. You can find our Twitter profile, our uh, iTunes link and our RSS feed. And also Brian has his own podcast called Sovereign Tech. And That's right. it's a show about technology and freedom. I think a lot of people who listen to this show, Sex and Science Hour, would be interested in your show as well. Yeah, just go to sovrynntech.com and you can find all the episodes there. Welcome back to Sex and Science Hour. (laughs) Well, we flew through those two articles in record speed last segment. I usually don't try to do more than one article per segment. Oh, it becomes problematic. Yeah, they kind of squish up against each other. So this this segment, section section two, things are going to be more relaxed. Um, We're going to be just doing one article this segment. And this article... Could I actually make one comment? Yeah, go, on the, please. Yeah, on the 10 a.m. thing. Yeah, you didn't get a chance to do no, that. No, no, that's okay. That's okay, because I, I thought what I had to say was brief and good. Um, but, you know, I think the thing is, is that, you know, a lot of people talk about, well, we're supposed to be waking up with the sun, right? And you get up at six or seven or whatever that mm-hmm. ends up having to be. And I think that could still be true. And getting to work at 10 a.m. could still be very Except likely true. Except we're being kept up all night by screens, right? Right. Well, you have that problem, too. <laughs> but my, my point is, is that, like, personally, I find, and I mean, I've been in the military and I've worked all kinds of crazy tech jobs and everything to where, you know, the clock doesn't seem to matter. But Oh, yeah. I've done shift work, too. It's right. not fun. But being able to work from home, how quickly and how easily and how beneficial it feels to be able to wake up and ease into the day. You know, like, I mean, yes. really, like very slowly yeah, to start work when you kind of feel ready. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Instead I mean, of getting this jarring start of like, OK, I have to do this at a certain time. And then when you start work at a certain time, it's almost like it becomes like you have to do everything at a certain time. You live you are a slave to the clock. It's like at 10 it's at 12 o'clock. 
I, like I just remember being in school and then at, at 12 o'clock the lunch bell would ring and it's like, okay, you got 30 minutes to eat lunch whether you're hungry or not. Yeah. Oh, right? yeah. School's the worst as far as all this goes. Uh, yeah, but- and it all kind of starts there. People get conditioned to it. Yep. Like I didn't, until I like sort of went went on my own and started doing my own thing and, and started my own business, I really was not used to being able to make my own schedule all day. It's a little scary at first. It's like, whoa, what am I going to, how am I going to plan out the day? This it's is a lot anarchy. of decisions to make. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that scary, but it's just like <laughs> most people are not used to that. They sort of have things at certain times during the day. And so then they plan their whole day around those things, like the yes. start of work and the end of work and dinner time and lunchtime. And you know, I, I suppose there can be sort of a comfort in having that planned out for you. But when you get to decide it yourself, it can also be very liberating. And oh, yeah. I find my life is a lot more pleasant being able to do that. Now, I recognize that this can be a little bit of a it can be an issue because not everybody has the circumstances in life where they can easily avoid doing shift jobs. Right. They can easily start a business for themselves. They can easily work from home. Right. You know, it's like it, it does take a certain amount of access to opportunities, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, like I don't want to, I, I mean, I, I don't want to say the P word, but, you know, it. a lot of people who work shift jobs, they're not the most desirable jobs, right? If you're working sure. overnight in a warehouse or even as a nurse at a hospital or something like that, they're important jobs, but people don't tend to want to do them. And so, you know, they, they get relegated, certain people get relegated to shift work jobs because that's one of the only options they have available to them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, it's very. Whereas if they had more options, they would choose a non-shift work job. Right. And we know from science that shift work hurts people. It's bad for your health long term. Oh, absolutely. Split shifts, straight shifts. I mean, third shifts, all of them. They're, they're all terrible. Uh, yeah. So, but I just wanted to say that is that, you know, there is something to, even if you believe the idea or, you know, even if the science were true, say that you're supposed to kind of wake up with the sun, not, you know, not exerting yourself, yourself until like 10 a.m. could still make sense. You just ease into the day. And, and I, I find that to be very beneficial. Uh, there's all kinds of things I do before 10 a.m. So, <laughs> And that's it. Yep. That's all I, I got to say. I roll out of bed at an hour that I don't care to admit on the air. <laughs> <laughs> but i just been a person like that. I always loved my sleep. I don't know what I was thinking when I went to medical school, which I did eventually quit. So... <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, um, so we've got our article here for segment two from inverse.com. This actually comes from a listener. Cognitive Dissident sent this to us. And (laughs) and you can email us or contact us uh, through our website, sexandsciencehour.com. Just use the contact form on our website. Or you can email us directly, show at sexandsciencehour.com. But if you use that contact form, you don't have to put your email address in. It'll just come to us through the magic of the internet. And you can say your name is something like Cognitive Dissident. Magic. Or Mike Oxhart. As we got <laughs> as we got an email from this week. <laughs> yeah. We got some really creative ones. Anyway, so let's get into this article here. This is really interesting. This is why robots need to be able to say no from inverse.com <clears throat> by Matthias Schutz from Tufts University. So should you always do what other people tell you to do? Clearly not, and clearly not according to the last article. Yeah, I was going to say, that, that, what a theme. What a segue, yeah, yeah, that's right. Should you always do what other people tell you to do? Clearly not. Everyone knows that. So should future robots always obey our commands? 
At first glance, you might think they should, simply because they're machines and that's what they're designed to do. But then think of all the times you would not mindlessly carry out others' instructions and put robots into those situations. For example, just consider an elder care robot tasked by a forgetful owner to wash the dirty clothes, even though the clothes had just come out of the washer. So robots working for an older person who has memory problems. Yep. A memory care robot, perhaps. And they say, oh, wash my clothes. But the robot just did the laundry. Right. It just did the laundry a few minutes ago. Just the person forgot. Right. A preschooler who orders a daycare robot to throw a ball out the window, perhaps onto the street. Mm. That's problematic, right? Sure. A student commanding her robot tutor to do all the homework instead of doing it herself. Right. Oh, wouldn't you love to have a homework robot? I mean, well, I think homework's the problem there, but, you know, I can yeah, see. Yeah, the robot wouldn't be the issue. I mean, actually, I think that would be kind of a smart thing for a student to learn. Like, hey, if you can automate busy work, go for it, right? That's yeah. a useful skill to have. I'd say that that kid's set up for success. <laughs> and then the last example they give is a household robot instructed by its busy and distracted owner to run the garbage disposal, even though spoons and knives are stuck in it. So that could create a safety hazard, uh-huh, obviously. Yes. And, the, uh, you know, a garbage disposal, maybe it has some built-in trip switch so that if there's like a solid object that it can't grind up, it'll stop on its own. Right. But, I mean, that is a situation like, have you ever turned on the disposal with a with a knife or a spoon stuck in it and it makes this horrible sound and it doesn't actually stop on its own until right. it breaks? So, you know, that that would be a good situation, I think, to have a robot question eh, question its orders. <laughs> There are plenty of benign cases, they say, where robots receive commands that ideally should not be carried out because they lead to unwanted outcomes. But not all cases will be that innocuous, even if their commands initially appear to be. Consider a robot car instructed to back up while the dog is sleeping in the driveway behind it, or a KitchenAid robot instructed to lift a knife and walk towards <laughs> and walk forwards when positioned behind a, a human chef. So they're telling a robot to lift up a knife and walk forwards and there's a chef standing in front of it. Oh, shit. That's bad. The commands are simple, but the outcomes are significantly worse. I can't do that, Dave. Right? I'm sorry, Dave. Sorry, Dave. I can't do that. <laughs> How can humans avoid such harmful results of robot obedience? If driving around the dog were not possible, the car would have to refuse to drive at all. So they're saying, like, if there's a dog behind a car... If it can't if it can't go around the dog, then it's just going to have to not drive at all. But what if there's sure. like a health? What if the human inside is having a baby and needs to get to the hospital? But there's a dog <laughs> blocking it. And similarly, if avoiding stabbing the chef were not possible, the robot would either have to stop walking forward or not pick up the knife in the first place. In either case, it is essential. It is essential for both autonomous machines to detect the potential harm their actions could cause and to react to it by either attempting to avoid it or if harm cannot be avoided, by refusing to carry out the human instruction. How can we teach robots when it's okay to say no? Wow. Yeah. So is that the end of the article? No, it's not the end. This is just the beginning. It's just posing the question. Um, Do you have anything to add before we move on? Uh, Why don't we move on? And then, because I'm curious what they're going to bring up before I get into my shtick. How can robots know what will happen next? In our lab, this is, I guess, this person is a researcher at Tufts um, who wrote this. In our lab, we have started to develop robotic controls that make simple inferences based on human commands. These will determine whether the robot should carry them out as instructed or reject them because they violate an ethical principle that the robot is programmed to obey. So they're creating the the ethics subroutines that you saw in the doctor on Voyager and data on Star Trek. Yeah. 
Um, Telling robots how and when and why to disobey is far easier said than done. Figuring out what harm or problems might result from an action is not simply a matter of looking at direct outcomes. A ball thrown out the window could end up in the yard with no harm done, but the ball could end up on a busy street, never to be seen again, or even causing a driver to swerve and crash. Context makes all the difference. It's difficult for today's robots to determine when it's okay to throw a ball, such as to a child playing catch, and when it's not, such as out the window or into the garbage. Even harder if the child is trying to trick the robot, pretending to play a ball game but then ducking, letting the ball disappear through the open window. Explaining morality and law to robots. Understanding those dangers, well, would there be a difference to robots? Because, like, everything the human codes it to do is law, basically. What do you mean? Like, the difference between morality and law for a human is law is something you're compelled by force to do. So it's like it kind of removes the choice from the matter. Morality is like socially sanctioned. Is this good or bad? You know what I mean? And so code is law. Yeah, code is law for for robots, right? Sure. As humans, we always have more agency and choice than machines do because we program them to do things. So getting back to the article here, Brian, I know you want to jump in, but there's one more paragraph. So let's just finish it up. Explaining morality and law to robots. Understanding these dangers involves a significant amount of background knowledge, including the prospect that playing ball in front of an open window could send the ball through the window. It requires the robot to not only consider actions outcomes by themselves, but also to contemplate the intentions of the human giving the instructions. To handle these complications of human interactions, benevolent or not, robots need to be able to explicitly reason through consequences of actions and compare outcomes to established social and moral principles that prescribe what is or is not desirable or legal. As seen above, our robot has a general rule that says if you are instructed, and they they have a video in here that demonstrates the robot. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll put the audio in the show, but um, it, basically they've got a video here of a robot that they've sort of programmed like an ethics subroutine into. All right, so here's the video. Sit down. Okay. It's a cute little robot. It's like it looks like a person, pretty anthropomorphic. And when he says "sit down," it sits down. Then he's going to tell it, "Stand up." Stand up. There, there he goes. Okay. Okay. And then it stands up. Yeah, that voice isn't doing it for me. <laughs> it's kind of creepy. Yeah. Walk forward. Now the robot is on a table. Sorry, I cannot do that as there is no support ahead. It knows that if it walks off the table, it's going to fall. But it is unsafe. And the robot says, but it is unsafe. I will catch you. Okay. Johnny Five is alive. Walk forward. Okay. And then it walks off the table, and he catches it. Ouch. (laughs) Well, not a very smart robot, because... um, you know, most human children would know, yeah, just because you say you're going to catch me, I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty trusting, isn't it? So, yeah. So that's what that was what the video was all about. Um, you get the point. A little creepy. Yeah, a little creepy. And they say, as seen above, our robot has a general rule that says, if you are instructed to perform an action and it is possible that performing the action could cause harm, then you are not allowed to perform it. 
Making the relationship between obligations and permissions explicit allows the robot to reason through the possible consequences of an instruction and whether they are acceptable. In general, robots should never perform illegal actions, nor should they perform legal actions that are not desirable. Hence, they will need representations of laws, moral norms, and even etiquette in order to be able to determine whether the outcomes of an instructed action, or even the action itself, might be in violation of these principles. While our programs are still a long way from what they will need to be to allow robots to handle the examples above, our current system already proves an essential point. Robots must be able to disobey in order to obey. There, That's ew. the end of it. All right. Uh, I mean, there's so much like to unpack about this. Yeah, so, let's unpack it. Well, I mean, do you have thoughts? Like, what, what's what's going on for you? Um, it's it's so interesting. Like, I know this is at this technology is at a really basic level right mm-hmm. now very developmental um i think between now and the point where it gets perfected there are going to be so many fuck-ups and so much that goes <laughs> wrong along the way as they figure out how to help robots like not be socially awkward and like <laughs> figure out whether things will cause harm or not <laughs> you know well yeah absolutely so i two points one is is that i don't think this will ever be perfected yeah, probably in not. Fact, it's probably so complicated. Yeah, in fact, if it were, I think the robots would probably slaughter us because they would if they actually developed morality, they'd say, "Wait a minute, you made me you're, to be a you're slave." A sla- yeah, you, you enslaved me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's how bad that would get. Now, I'm going to bring up something that I'm sure everybody, every listener is already thinking about. Okay, but I think it's important to talk about and I, and it's fiction. But it's really not. And mm-hmm. that's why I always use this example. This has been heavily explored in fiction. Right. But yeah, now so, we're actually coming face to face with the need for it to be true. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what you have is the three laws of robotics. It's yeah, Asimov's right. three laws of robotics, which were explored in the robot series, which were part of a much larger universe. Now, that's fiction. But I want I need to set this. You have to understand Asimov was as much a scientist and one of the most brilliant men to ever walk the earth. But he is as much a scientist as anybody can be. Okay. He was doing a logical play when he wrote these books. They are not just fiction. Like, because I get I get critiqued whenever I bring these up, and people are like, "Well, that's from a fiction book." No, it's not. It, it like yes, it's a fiction book, but they were designed like this was all well thought out. This is all supposed to like really work this stuff out. Very similar to what this lab is probably doing, mm-hmm. where they're like, "Okay, we input this. What happens? How does this work?" It, it was just it was being done in a written form. Okay. So you have the three laws of robotics and what you get in the robot series are cases and they're not really crazy ones either, where each one of them is able to get broken. Okay. Each one of the laws and the laws are designed to pretty much make sure that a human doesn't die. Like that these robots don't a revolt or B, you know, they don't go around uh, killing a bunch of different people. And you know what, what, with these three laws, which sound really good on paper, again, you find out that they keep getting broken. So what happens later in the robot series is Asimov creates this thing called the zeroth law. Okay. As in zero. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Right? Before so it, any of the other ones yet. Right. And this law is a robot may not harm humanity or by an action, allow humanity to come to harm. That's the zeroth law. Now, th- what becomes a problem in that, and I think that this is true, at least right now for humanity, is that the concept of humanity is an abstraction. Like it's not, I mean, yes, there's, there's objectivity, you know, like there, there's, there's primacy of existence and yada, 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 yada. But 
the, the concept of humanity as in what kind of what they were talking about here. Like, okay, does a robot, whatever case you could think of, does a robot, you know, throwing a ball out the window or something, you know, what, what kind of problems can that cause? Like what is actually harmful to a human? If a human is into BDSM, okay, now that's bringing them pleasure, but under most concepts of morality, a lot of, or, you know, at least, uh, uh, more common mores, I guess you could say in society today would say that, no, that's not right. That you wouldn't program a robot to, to say, choke you or do something, you know, or do, do something else, but that's exactly what the human wants. And it is, a, it is an, inst, you know, a matter of pleasure for that human. Mm. It is a matter of satisfaction for that human uh, right. and not satisfying a human. When does that, you know, equate to not being harmed? So that's the thing is that the human condition as it stands right now, you know, our brains, we, we have kludgy brains and, you know, we're not the most logical creatures running around and not to say that logic's everything, but yeah, you've got that problem is that humanity, that, that whole concept is very much an abstraction right mm. now. And so that's why I say, I don't think it could ever be perfected because, you know, most most humans have no clue what what that even is, you know, what humanity even is. Yeah, and and what harm actually is. Right. I mean, that that law just immediately when you said the robot shall not allow humanity to come to harm, that sounds like a positive obligation to protect humanity. And mm-hmm. like, okay, what about all the people slowly hurting their health by eating all these soda and you know cookies and stuff like that right, right? Well, what, yeah. I mean, is the robot going to snatch it out of your hand next time you eat a bag of potato chips yeah right? i mean is it going to slap a cigarette out of your mouth yeah. like what is this going to look like <laughs> right. you, you know and the robot's going to know what's healthy for you better right. than you could possibly ever know and then do the robots actually become part of humanity because they're sort of made in our image and then are they protecting themselves right sure yeah absolutely so this is this is such a huge subject and and it really, to me, brings into question very much even the ethics of creating robots of this caliber. Yeah, that can do stuff where they might need to say no. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this is a real, a, a very real problem where this is a technology that maybe just shouldn't exist. Not to this level, you know. I, 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 well, you know, it's it's really interesting because so many simple machines that we have that wouldn't be considered robots but just machines have safety switches right where it's like you know the garbage disposal for example it has a safety switch where if it's grinding up soft tissue or something or if it's grinding up a knife or trying to grind up something that it really can't grind up or if it gets too hot it shuts off automatically Mm -hmm. a lot of machines have those kind of switches but this is like a more complex version that we're talking about of those switches where the robot has to know a lot of background information and integrate a lot of context and especially when you're talking about robots having etiquette i mean that's like oh my god they have to know even more background and context for that He's a lot of humans can't even figure that out. How do we expect a robot to be polite, right? Yeah, just like a lot of technologies, humanity is not ready for this. <laughs> hey, we have our first two seasons of Sex and Science Hour available on our website, sexandsciencehour.com, also on soundcloud.com slash sexandsciencehour for your listening pleasure. So if you haven't if you haven't been able to get enough of Sex and Science Hour in season three, which we're now on episode 11 of season three, you can go back to seasons one and two and listen to like whole 24 hour binges of Sex and Science Hour. It's like a Netflix marathon, except you can do other things. You don't have to watch something. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is a, <laughs> a lot, lot of fun. Of fun. <laughs> if I don't say so myself. If you do say so yourself. Wait, I did. Yeah, yeah you're right. You just right. did. <laughs> 
This is Sex and Science Hour. We're back in segment three, and we actually have another one about robots, Brian, so we'll, you'll be very happy we get to continue talking about this. This show is just rocking the themes. Like, like yeah. We're just running right into the next one. Everything leads in. It's just wonderful. That's right. That's right. So, well, we hope it's entertaining for you. That's kind of the whole point. <laughs> um, this is from news.com slash dot au. So it's Australian news site. Uh-huh. And the headline is, French woman wants to marry a robot as expert predicts sex robots to become preferable to humans. Oh, boy. Oh, shit. This is also from Cognitive Dissident, who sent this in to us. Seems to be obsessed with robots. Yeah. Yes. Cognitive Dissident sent us lots of articles about robots, which right. we like. I mean, I'm... I'm cool with it. We I'll did two robots. of them in this article in this episode. <laughs> so um, this article says, uh, by the way, it's from Victoria Craw from news.com.au. On the surface, Lily seems like a blushing young woman ready to marry the man of her dreams who makes her totally happy. Only her partner is a 3D printed robot named Inmovator, who she designed herself after realizing that she was attracted to, quote, humanoid robots generally, rather than other people. I'm really and totally happy, she told news.com.au over email in her tentative English. Our relationship will get better and better as technology evolves. The proud, listen to this, robosexual said that I've she, heard that term before. I've yeah. never heard it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I have friends If you that, love that your vibrator, are you robosexual? Or? Yeah, maybe. If you like your vibrator better than a guy, are you robosexual? <laughs> <laughs> the proud robosexual said she loved the voices of robots as a child, but realized at 19 that she was sexually attracted to them as well. Physical relationships with other men confirmed the matter. I'm really and only attracted by the robots, she said. <laughs> my only two relationships with men have confirmed my love orientation because I dislike really physical contact with human flesh. She has since built her own dream man with open source technology from a French company and has lived with him for one year. They are, quote, engaged and plan to marry when robot human marriage is legalized in France. The unconventional relationship has been accepted by friends and family, but she said, quote, some understand better than others. She won't (laughs) reveal whether they have a sexual relationship and is currently in training to become a roboticist in order to take her passion into her everyday life. Well, Lily's views will strike many as odd. It's just a sign of things to come, according to David Levy. Uh, well, sorry, this there were like previews, like videos popping up. I lost my place. Well, Lily's views may strike many as odd. It's just a sign of things to come, says David Levy. The chess whiz and authority on love and sex with robots, I guess that's a book he wrote, said he expects robot-human marriages to become commonplace by 2050, if not before. Speaking at the second conference on the issue held in London this week, Mr. Levy told a room filled with academics and interested people that advances in artificial intelligence mean robots could become, quote, enormously appealing partners within the next few decades. The future has a habit of laughing at you. If you think love and sex with robots is not going to happen in your lifetime, you're wrong. The first human robot marriages will take place around the year 2050 or sooner, but not longer, he said. The conference explored a host of issues on the subjects, including everything from what robots should look like to whether they should be able to, quote, learn about sexual preferences and feedback information to companies behind them. Well, that's already starting. We uh, covered that on the show a little while, (laughs) where someone's vibrator that was like a smart dildo was sending information back to the company, including her email address and other shit that identified her. 
University of London computing professor Adrian David Chiok said he believes robots will not only become common, but preferable for many people. It's going to be so much easier, so much more convenient to have sex with a robot. You can have exactly what kind of sex you want. That's going to be the future. That will that we will have more sex with robots. And the next stage is love. We're already seeing it. Actual sex with humans may be like going to a concert. When you're home and you can listen to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, it's good enough. And once or twice a year, you might want to go to Royal Albert Hall and hear it in a concert hall. (laughs) That may be the way sex with humans is going to be. It's going to be much easier, much more convenient to have sex with a robot and maybe much better because that's how you want it. That's the end of the article. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I've heard about uh, this sort of thing. Sorry, there was audio playing. It didn't make it onto the show. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so so I've heard other people, you know, kind of talk about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the claim, you know, pretty much gets to a, uh, uh, you know, dystopian level. To yeah, where, I've heard this claim thrown around a lot. Yeah, where where humans aren't, you know, going to pretty much humans will die out mm-hmm. uh, and, and they're they're not going to reproduce any longer. Um, and I that that's just bullshit. I mean, it's just utter nonsense uh, because people have fetishes, you know, like this woman who wants to marry her robot is really experiencing a fetish. And I can imagine she's fat. Yeah, I think she's got a fetish, too. Yeah. And I can imagine where it's coming out of. She's probably been hurt by a lot of humans. And here's this robot that, you know, I mean, in fact, there was an episode of Star Trek that covered this Mm -hmm. uh, with Data, where Data went to get a girlfriend. And because this woman like really thought, oh, you know, humans have fucked with me so much, you know, you know, fucked me up, fucked me over so many times. I'm, you know, I'm just going to go with data. He's great. Uh, but then of course, data can't really respond in all the ways, you know, that, that a human can, Mm -hmm. um, but this is, you know, it's a fetish. And at the same time, fetishes go both ways, meaning that even if, and, and, and this is what people were describing is that, I mean, the article didn't say it so much, but that a robot, a sex robot will effectively like, you know, it'll be able to learn algorithmically all the things that make you tick, you know, in bed and, no human could could possibly could replicate that. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's advantages. But to, where do they learn those techniques? Probably from the best porn stars and sex workers, right? Sure. Or you know, they just learn by studying your body, by your reactions. I mean, mm. you know, just considering how much an Apple Watch can learn about you, imagine mm. what a robot could do. Well, maybe, yeah, yeah. That's true. So, you know, I get that, but there would also be people who would very much fetish having a child. You know, and and then like having a family and all of this. In fact, today, in many ways, I already think it's a fetish. All right. <laughs> Some people fetishize it. It doesn't mean it's always a fetish. No, no, yeah. not always. But I'm saying there's plenty of people who fetishize it. Yeah, it's for not sure. necessarily what, you know, well, anyway. Um, so humanity's not going to die off, you know, once these robots come around that you can please you endlessly. I think I have no real problem with it. Um, but what I'll, about what about like robot children? Because, you know, so many people, yeah, so many people have children because they want their children to grow up to be a certain way, Mm -hmm. to do certain things that maybe the parents never got to do or something like that. Yeah. So what about genetically, genetically manipulated children, robot children that you can just program to do whatever you want? Well, that'll become a thing, too. And actually care of what about what about human children being raised by robots? Because a lot of times nobody wants to do the the care work of raising a child, right? So what sure, about be the new nanny? Yeah, what about like literally in the Jetsons they had Rosie the robot nanny, right? Right. Yeah, uh, I mean I don't know. Well, what do you think in general about sex robots? I I have other thoughts, but like what? I I don't think they've gotten realistic 
enough yet and accessible enough yet where it's a huge problem. And to me, it feels a little bit like fear mongering when people always bring this up. Oh, everybody's going to want a robot lover and they're just going to want to um, like, you know, have an automaton partner that, that that can fuck them really good and they can basically control and program and it's like it doesn't have a mind of its own. Like, yeah, maybe there's some people who want that, but I think it gets old really fast when your partner doesn't have a brain in their head and they don't have their own free will and their own hopes and dreams and aspirations like every person I've ever loved it's been because they were like a firecracker inside and they had their own personality they had their own sense of self they had their own dreams and goals and wishes and things that they wanted to do and sometimes they disagreed with me and sometimes they did things I didn't want them to do and but that was part of why I love them you know and so how could you love an automaton I don't think it's very attractive in the long run but maybe that's just me. I mean, I don't know. I, th- that's why I say it sounds like fear mongering to me, because I, I just don't know for that reason. How could you love an automaton mm-hmm. if it'll ever really catch on? Sure. Yeah. And, and I think you're raising a point, uh, you know, that. Well, I say this all the time because there's a lot of fear mongering around like artificial intelligence and all that. And most people don't even know what those terms necessarily mean or they get used improperly in the first place. But you know, I, I always, it's a great saying, it's not mine, but I use it a lot. And that is artificial intelligence is no match for natural stupidity. And, <laughs> and, and it's really true. And the thing is and that natural stupidity. Okay. And it's not necessarily being stupid. Just say maybe less, whatever intelligence means it's less than perhaps the, the quickness of an artificial intelligence or something mm-hmm. or has less knowledge, but it, there's the potential for like just these leaps in logic that the human brain can do that a human can do like leap. It can go from instead of doing, you know, a robot does a, B, C, D, E, F, G as to where a human can do a D G B X, you know, it, like it can bounce around and go all over the place without doing all the, you know, the quote unquote steps. Yeah. Creativity. Required. Robots aren't very good at creativity. Uh, right. That's why I say that. I don't think the sex techniques could be really that good. Cause right. Because like creativity is such a big part of sex. Like, well, well, they can be of things to do and yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so they can be great. But what the human can do is can potentially come up with something you did not, you had no clue yeah, you liked. You didn't expect. Okay? Yeah. Right. And that's, that's where kind of that, that advantage would, uh, you know, would come in. But mm-hmm. also I think you need to be kind of a, a human that's very much, has a lot of self-awareness and is in touch of themselves to even be able to come up with some of that shit. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I, I don't see robot sex really replacing things. Uh, did you have another thought? Yeah. I mean, when we're talking about, so I feel like maybe we're being a little bit ableist here, I guess, when we're talking about like, oh, well, who could ever fall in love with a robot? Well, maybe for some people, a robot would be a good partner. Sure. Because they they have something with their neurology, the way things are hooked up, where they they can't really form those attachments with another human or they just can't find a human partner, you know, yeah. that that wants to be their partner, too. And in those cases, maybe they maybe it would be good to be with a robot or maybe it would be good to a robot could be like a sexual surrogate, a mm-hmm. sex worker, you know, when somebody's down and out and doesn't, you know, can't doesn't want or can't find a human partner or has some s- sexual injury where most people don't um, aren't very good at rolling with that. And when they're having sex with them, you know, maybe a robot could be like a therapist for that kind of person. Yeah. Which there are humans who do that role now and they're called sexual surrogates, but maybe robots would be great at solving at serving that function 
And maybe for some people, they would never get beyond the surrogate stage. But for the majority of people, I, I think they would probably not want a robot in the long term. Well, so I think that there's an area where these would be very popular that people don't think about. And that is, is there's a demographic that I think is going to find sex robots really, really popular. And this is kind of the middle ground of where this will go. And it also debunks kind of the dystopian nature of, of what's going to happen with sex robots. And where I think that, that sex robots are going to be the most popular is with married couples. Oh, because you're going to get to add in a third, a third person. (laughs) You're going to have threesomes, foursomes, all the group sex you could imagine. And you get to have it with the human, you know, that you get to experience all the creativity and, and all the novelty, you know, whatever else with. Uh, so, you know, but but people people kind of forget about that. In fact, I've never read an article that's brought that up, that that is where and I really do. I think that's going to be exceptionally popular. And I don't think the woman's going to like, why? Why leave? You don't have to. You know, the robot isn't necessarily going to love you back. It's just going to create these novel experiences mm-hmm. for you and your partner or partners. I mean, if you're in like in a polyamorous relationship, but this is going to what I think the real potential here for sex robots. OK, I'm not necessarily against them. The real potential, I think, is to allow humans to explore love in a lot of a lot of new ways, or maybe uh, I don't know if necessarily new explore pleasure. I but would say, yeah, explore pleasure. Because what's going to happen when you fuck a robot and it's really great, and you're like, oh my god, I think I love this robot, but then you're like, oh, it can never love me back. <laughs> Well, that's right. the thing. Yeah, you're going to know. But maybe it could be your training wheels for wanting to get into non-monogamous relationships. Um, it could be training wheels for a lot of things. I think sex robots would be very greatly helpful in any situation where sex with somebody would be kind of tough work, but like necessary mm-hmm. if they want to be a sexual person. And what I mean by that is like, think about like, ladies, if you're the kind who's ever had sex with a boy, um, Think about the first boy you ever had sex with as a teenager and how clumsy, awkward, jackhammering they probably were. And you probably had to like tell them in and you were probably struggling with like how to tell them in a nice way that wouldn't hurt their feelings. Like, hey, that hurts when you jackhammer my pussy. Please don't do that. You know, (laughs) or or whatever. Or like, hey, um, I didn't have any pleasure. Can you please like pay some attention to me and not come in two minutes? Like or whatever, (laughs) you know, like. Those kinds of things, like I think a, a sex robot would be a great thing for like a young teenage male who was like trying to lose their virginity mm-hmm. and they could teach him about how to focus on the partner's pleasure and how to like, you know, do do sex in a way that would make women want to repeat it with them and, you know, yeah, all kinds of stuff. And And maybe also for like older people, right? What if you... What if you're married to somebody? What if you're like a in a marriage and you get old, one person becomes sick and they're not really able to have sex anymore or they don't want to have sex anymore. Or yeah. They lose interest. What are you supposed to do? You still love your spouse. So many people are in marriages like that, you sure. know, where just sexual desire goes out the window or able, ability to have sex in the same way that you used to goes out the window for one or both people. So what do you do in that situation when one person wants to have sex and the other one doesn't or can't? Well, I think that's a great reason to call in a pleasure bot, right? Yeah, absolutely. Get those sexual needs met and be able to stay in the marriage and love your spouse or partner as you always did, but just get your sexual needs met when you wouldn't have been able to have the option to get them met before. 
Yeah, no, I agree. And and again, just to reiterate, like, I don't think that this is going to be the end of human human relationships, like, because, you know, love and attraction and sensuality and a lot of these different things is very much a mental game. And I don't think we were just talking about this in the last segment. I don't think robots are ever going to get to where they can play that mental game that well. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just not going to happen because if they do, they're not going to be your fucking sex robot. Yeah. They're going to say, no, get the hell out of here. I'm not your slave. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a sex robot wouldn't be very good at flirtation, right? Because that's kind right, of the that's... creativity element, right? And that's that's so necessary for so many people right. to have the spark that then leads to sex. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I say they'll be great for role plays, but, you know, they're going to be bad, you know, lovers in the long term. Yeah. And maybe they, you know, maybe sex robots are going to be great at alleviating some of the burden on sex workers of the sexual work that they sure. don't want to do. Or they, that's less desirable to do. But you know? then I want to leave the I want to leave the listeners with a question. Here's the big one: Is that is having sex? If you are in a relationship or you're married or something like that, is having sex with a sex robot without consent from your partner? Is that uh, is that micro cheating? Is that micro cheating? <laughs> <laughs> it's micro cheating for sure. This is Sex and Science Hour after show coming up. Stick around. But it's a ro- you've just heard Sex and Science Hour. Game over. Play again next week. never been scared that you were going to leave me for a robot. Oh, I'm never Because I know I got the goods. (laughs) Never leaving you. (laughs) You ever been scared that I was going to leave you for a robot? No. No, Do you think there are people out there who are scared that their partner might leave them for a robot or that they might be single forever because all the good men or women are going to find robots or non-binary people are going to find robots instead of them? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's lots of people who think that way. But then there are also the people that, you know, don't get... They're probably the same people, and I and really I, I don't mean to offend, but I'm just saying they're probably the same people that think sex is all you know PIV, it's all penis and vagina, and uh, you know they're probably pretty boring people. <laughs> I yeah. guess is my point because you know there, again when you consider just how much there is to sexuality and sensuality and all that, like I just really there's no way a robot's going to match that. Uh, and be there to to obey your every whim you know it's just not gonna it's not gonna happen yeah i can see to some people how maybe that might sound great at first but Mm -hmm. it's gonna get old so fast yeah and also speaking of getting old like i really think growing old together not that i think people should get old and die like that's sad you know i don't want people to get sick and old and die (laughs) right obviously but like as long as we're getting old and dying and we can't stop it yet with technology like, wouldn't you want to share that experience of aging with another person instead of having a robot that looks the same forever and never ages and doesn't understand what it's like or have empathy for you when you age? Yeah. I mean, those, yeah, those are huge, huge points. Um, I mean, if I can bring up one last point, mm-hmm. just, just quick that I know some people might say, well, but what if it's a robot that, uh, you know, that is completely like its level of AI matches the human brain pound for pound, or maybe even, uh, you know, is greater, uh, than that. 
Well, then, you know, you've got another life form there. And then you might as well just say it's like it's an alien. And which, you know, what's wrong with a, a, a hey, human there's falling people who claim to be sapien? in love with dolphins. So, sure, I right. mean, that's pretty well, close, they, right? They jerk them off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, but I mean, but really, like, so you have a sapient life form in front of you. What's wrong with somebody falling in love with that? Nothing at all. It's fucking sapient. It has all the same liberties that you have. Uh, right. But then it's not, it's no longer. It's not really a sex robot. A robot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it, more like a person. Yeah. Right. So, so it's a totally different, you know, conversation that you have. You're not talking about sex robots anymore. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't right. the dystopian future of sex robots is not coming, you know, but I, yeah. they're going to be on their way. They're already here in many ways. Uh, it, yeah, but it's just, it won't be dystopian. Mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting subject. I'm sure we'll talk about it more. And thank you, Cognitive Dissident, for providing like, most of our show prep for today. We Damn. really appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> so we uh, before we get into the after show here, Brian, we got an email from Mike Oxard. <laughs> okay. Mike Oxard. Think about that for <laughs> yeah, a minute. I, I, yeah. <laughs> Get Just it? move the K a little bit. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, through our contact form on our website, sexandsciencehour.com. And this is uh, the person who's... Mike was the person who sent us the email about the bike fatigue last week. So in case you miss it, go back to our C-Word special from last week where we talked about a question of potentially adrenal fatigue or a case of overtraining or working out too hard where the person was riding the bike and going to the gym and had recently lost a bunch of weight and was but was feeling fatigued like all the time and was wondering what to do about it. So I said, you know, check out some adrenal fatigue videos on YouTube, learn about it and maybe take a break from exercising for a while. It sounds like that's what your body is saying you need and uh, see if it doesn't improve. So they they wrote back with a follow up. Um, He said, thanks for the feedback on fatigue. For the record, I'm remaining car free as part of my bet with my brother. So he'll owe me $200 on April 1st. (laughs) So this is the part of the reason that he was riding his bike so much was because he made a bet with his brother that he was going to give up his car and his brother was going to pay him money. So that's what that's what the bet is. (laughs) He says, I'll eliminate traditional exercise for a month and gauge how I feel. My gym offers yoga, so I'll try that. As for biking, I'll just do what I need to do to get around town or walk. Also, autocorrect was horrible on my last tablet where I wrote you that email, so I'll try to be more coherent. The new one seems to be better so far. And yes, I agree. So cool. Thank you for the follow-up on that. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, hope you feel better in no time. And um, I think you might really enjoy yoga. Sometimes it opens up a, a whole new world when you start getting into it. Man, I'm a big 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 yoga fan and i'm gonna do some after the show (laughs) yeah right on hopefully we'll get done early enough yeah i'll make i'll make time for it so anyway speaking of that um i know you guys actually want us to release the show because of course we're recording this late on friday night as we usually do (laughs) you want us to release the show so we gotta wrap up this after show brian let's do it so on our after show we we support our show by having an amazon affiliate link and that's can be found at stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. If you go there to do your normal shopping on Amazon, we will get a little bit of uh, money from it and we'll be able to support our doing the show and get a nice little market signal that we should keep doing the show. So if you like our show, it's a good way to support us. Uh, stuff.sexandsciencehour.com and send us a signal to keep going, which we're hearing, which is it feels really nice. So um, and then we actually talk about what was purchased through our link on the after show, and we speculate about random crap, whatever. Sometimes we feel like. it gets humorous. Yeah, sometimes it gets uh, sometimes it gets kind of sexy. I have to say, <laughs> depending on what people buy. Um, <laughs> but uh, what did people buy this week at stuff.sexandsciencehour.com? Well, somebody 
joined Audible.com. And not only did we get a little bit of a, a kickback for that, for them being a new member of Audible, but we actually had like 12 audiobooks, or actually maybe more like 15 audiobooks that got purchased through our Stuff.Sex and Science Hour link. So I'm just, I'm just going to go down the list and read them because... I don't actually have the links to the audio audible books, so I can't like look up the synopsis or anything, but I think you're going to recognize a lot of these books. So the first one is battlefield earth. The audiobook. Yep. The audiobook for that is brilliant. Yeah. And this is one of my favorite science fiction books of all time. Completely ignore, please completely (laughs) ignore that it's written by L Ron Hubbard. Oh my God, it is. Oh my God. (laughs) It has, it has virtually nothing to do with Dianetics or or Scientology. Okay. (laughs) And, and, and trust me, L. Ron Hubbard made all that up and he knows he made it up because he wanted to make money. Uh, because, you know, writing novels wasn't doing it for him. You better not say that. They're going to sue us. Well, hey. Uh, I, I will. I am quoting someone else. I am quoting Harlan Ellison. And okay. Go after him, and he will. I will gleefully watch him take you down. Uh, but <laughs> whoa, <laughs> verbally. Uh, and and so anyway, uh, this is this is such a phenomenal read. It is the longest science fiction book in history. Like it is really. It's longer than the Bible. It's thousands of pages long. It is a massive, massive tome, and it is a wonder to listen to. That the performance that you can get on Audible. I'm a recent audiobook convert myself. Uh, is just fantastic. I of course read the novel years. Wow, and years ago, that's but, fascinating. Yeah, great book. It's not that expensive either. It's only twenty two bucks on Audible. So yeah, what and, the hell, you can get that for one Audible credit probably. And just real quick, do not. Like the movie's terrible of Battlefield. Oh, really? Like okay. it's one of the worst movies ever. Is made. this the one where Pay the no Xenu comes from, and it's all based on like a no. lot of? No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. Gotcha. This is this is all on Earth. It's yeah. Anyway. Okay. All right. Second up, we got Biology: The Science of Life, which sounds like a biology textbook. Cool. Um, never heard of it. Cal Caliban's War, not Taliban. Caliban. Never heard of that. Caliban's War. Nope. Yep. Never heard of it. Yeah. Not ringing a bell. Catalyst: Star Wars. Now that's a great audio. That one book. you've heard of. <laughs> yeah, I, I listened to that. I've actually listened to that twice. Um, that is the prequel to the new Star Wars movie, Rogue One, and it's a fine book. It, for, for Star Wars, it's not like a great liter, literary masterpiece, but it's great for Star Wars. And, what is it brief? Like, what is it about briefly? Uh, it's about Orson Krennic and Galen Erso mm-hmm. and about how they are. Uh, this isn't doing any spoilers for the movie. In fact, I recommend reading this book or listening to it before you see Rogue One, because then the movie will make a whole lot more sense. Uh, but it's all about Galen Erso's relationship with Orson Krennic and how he ends up like starting to build the Death Star and uh, and about how they're finding kyber crystals and everything that it takes. To, oh, to, so to it explains like the background that you should have known before you watch the movie. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I should have listened to that. Yeah, good book. <laughs> um, Conceived in Liberty, which is Murray Rothbard, right? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wait, that is that his history book. I don't remember. I don't know. I don't I, think I ever read that one. I think I think that might be the history book. Uh, like it's it's a couple books. I think. Right. Anyway, yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Um, critical business skills for success. It's not like a business book. Yeah, sounds good. Very cool. Economics, third edition. I wonder if this is the same person who got all those legal textbooks last week and maybe they're oh, maybe. educating themselves about all kinds of things. 
So they got Economics Third Edition, Ending Aging, which is my audiobook. Thank you very much for doing that. Um, Ending oh, nothing Aging like is... listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great book. It's like a it's a very long book. It's about eighteen or twenty hours. Um, so I hope they have a lot of free time to listen to audiobooks because they're if they got Battlefield Earth, which is the longest sci-fi book, and maybe it's an abridged edition, but it's probably still pretty long. Ending Aging is also pretty long. So. Um, yeah, you're going to be in business for a while for a listening to these audiobooks. Um, Ending Aging is about the uh, the ideas of Aubrey de Grey and Sen's Research Foundation, where they're trying to, they have these seven types of aging damage that they want to fix. So like the idea, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, we should try to slow down or prevent aging, but that's just maybe not a good approach scientifically for reasons they detail in the book. And what they do is go through seven types of aging damage that like, like on an old car, when things get rusty, you replace those parts, right? Or when it gets too many miles on it, you replace the engine or whatever. So it's like that you want to fix these different areas of damage in our bodies that occur as we age. And hopefully that will lead to rejuvenating the person, allowing them to live longer. So, um, and this is like really research that's being done now. Um, Maybe the life extension technologies will start coming out over the next 20, 30 years. I certainly hope so. Me too. It's very exciting. Yeah. It also has a great section at the beginning of the book that just sort of debunks the idea that aging is normal and natural and we should be dying and aging. Like, no, it's it's bad. It causes lots of suffering. <laughs> like, don't romanticize it. So anyway, um, yeah, that's ending, ending aging. Uh, you can get that on Audible. And I narrated it. <laughs> uh, Ghost Empire was the next book. Does that sound familiar to you? Just Ghost Empire? Ghost Empire, yeah. It doesn't say who the authors were. And then when I click on the link, it doesn't take me to the Amazon page. It's like we couldn't find that page. I, I, that's whenever I click on audiobook book links on this report, that's what it does. So I'm just flying by the seat of my pants here. Yeah, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what that is. That could be a lot of things, that Ghost Empire. Um, the Psychology of Human Behavior was the next book. It sounds like a psych textbook. Wait, was Ghost, was that about... Ghost Empire. There's a book. There's a book about Byzantium, about the Byzantine Empire, called Ghost Empire. Maybe it's that one. I I don't know. I forget who oh. wrote that though. I I'm not. Well, sure. that's interesting. I'm just googling it right but now. But that's because that's that's a hell. Of, if it's that book, it's a hell of a read. I want to say Richard something, but I don't. I don't know. Yeah, actually, that's Richard Fiddler. Ghost okay. Empire by Richard Fiddler. All right, I know the book. Yeah. This oh my is, god! Wow. Yeah, that's a great book. Yeah, it's about it's about the story of Constantinople. Yeah, actually, I might have quoted some of this. Uh, I did a, a special for Sovereign Tech on my Patreon. Oh my page, gosh! Wow, that wanna... person must have been listening to your special. Well, they must. I mean, I just released it today, but yeah, oh. who knows? Uh, but I, <laughs> wow. I, but I mean, in any case, um, yeah, I did a special about the history of uh, the hidden history of Christmas oh. uh, for Patreon, and if, you have to go to SovereignTech.com to get to become a patron to get access to those episodes. Oh, and believe me, you will want to become a patron because your bonus content is the shit. Yeah, yeah, but if if that's if that's the book, that's a great great fucking book. I yeah. love studying the the one thing maybe more interesting than studying the Roman Empire is is studying the kind of the Rome of the East, which is the Byzantine Empire. So you're in for a hell of a read if that's what it is. But it Hang might be on. a completely different book. I don't know. I it probably is the the same book I'm willing to bet. Mm. Then we had the psychology of human behavior, which that sounded interesting. Quicksilver. Does that sound familiar? 
No, that could be a lot of things. How about Tarnsman of Gore? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, baby. I know yeah. that. That's a John Norman classic. This yep. is uh, my one of my favorite science fiction series out there, bar none, is the Gore novels. Uh, We've and, talked about them on our after show, and you've talked about them on your show. Yeah, yeah. So Tarnsman of Gore is the first one of that series. Uh, came out, started like in the 70s. I mean, just a phenomenal. They're, they're 30, like 33 or 34 books in now. And I mean, you're, you're in for a ride when you read the Gore novels. Anyway, the privatization of roads and highways, human and economic factors. This is a Mises Institute book by Walter Block. Ah, uh-huh. oh, oh, this is actually, you know what? I don't like Walter Block, but this book's amazing. Yeah, he goes through all the ways, like, he sticks to the talking about the roads and highways, right? Like, he doesn't yeah. talk about any of the social shit, which is good. <laughs> yeah, that's where he falls apart. Yeah, that's right. And this is, so yeah, I think I've read this book, too, and actually it was really creative and good. And because, like, the the whole trope is, like, people can't imagine how you would have roads and, like, what about the roads? Like, they, mm-hmm. they freak out when you talk about, like, you know, oh, the government is, is not helping people. Like, why don't we just abolish it or get rid of it oh my god what about the roads well this this answers that question what about the roads the privatization of roads and highways well and it opens up with a really interesting premise and the premise is is that like he starts breaking walter block is breaking down the amount of deaths per year on the road on roads that happen yeah that's right the statistics are crazy right and so all the technologies that could be implemented like self-heating roads that will like melt ice and stuff instead of the plowing that we have and like yeah 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 so i mean like what do you what he effectively starts off with is that what if the problem isn't the drivers what if the problem you know isn't even necessarily the cars or something like that what if the problem is actually the entire road infrastructure itself (laughs) yeah and it's just a brilliant question to ask that like Mm -hmm. i know up until i read his book i never thought about that like it just that yeah, never even crosses totally. your mind that wait a minute what if the roads themselves suck ass? Well, most people don't you know? think about roads and how they could be improved or made better. Right? right. What if it's not bad drivers? What if it's just terrible infrastructure? Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's it's just a brilliant book. Very it's a one of a kind. Like there there's really no other book quite like it out there. Uh, so as much as I can't stand the guy, nice work. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Um, uh, it's a very cool book. Uh, the Privatization of Roads and Highways is the name of it. And then I think a lot of those Mises books are narrated by Jeff Riggenbach, who is a very famous libertarian yeah. narrator. Yeah, does a good job. He did like almost all the Mises books. And a lot of them are free on Mises.org, but you know, you could get them on Audible too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Will to Power, The Philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche. Hey, all right. Yeah, that sounds cool. That's a great read. Yep. Opening. I, I totally recommend lots that. Lots of new ideas. Yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah, Nietzsche, I mean, he had a lot of things right. He had a lot of things wrong, but he had a lot of things right, yeah. too. Yeah. I I haven't looked too deeply into him. I know he's real famous for the nihilist stuff, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I've heard some interesting stuff about him and from him, so. Well, it's a similar thing. I mean, he asks kind of like Walter Block with the roads. I mean, he asks those questions about morality, mm. you know, like, wait a second. What if nothing matters? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, things like this. Right. And, and you know, and that leads to, I mean, so much of like, say, anarchist, anarchist thought and a lot of these other things really spawn out of Nietzsche. I mean, they, they absolutely do. Max Stirner spawns out He's of that. He's definitely I mean, one of, of the classic philosophers and influential in psychology. Yep. Required you know. reading, in my opinion. Totally. Whether you agree with them or not. Yeah, well, the mark of an educated mind, I've been using this phrase so much lately, the mark of an educated mind is to be able to entertain an idea without accepting it. So you don't have to agree every with everything you read. And mm-hmm. you can, in fact, read things you disagree with. You know, if you're if you're so secure in your beliefs, and you know that they can't be challenged, then it would be no problem to read something you disagreed with sure. once in a yeah, while, right? Absolutely. <laughs> 
So thank you very much for the person who joined Audible and got all those books. I hope you enjoy them. Give us a review if you want to. Um, I'm very excited for you. Uh, in the actual books uh, category, and this will be able to actually see the books, so we won't have to guess at what they are. Um, the We have the Concepts of Physical Fitness, Active Lifestyles for Wellness. Cool. Yeah, it sounds like maybe it's an exercise science textbook or something like that. Um it's by Charles B. Corbin, and it looks like kind of an old book. There's, oh my God, there's a cheesy cover with like an Asian guy with a backpack climbing a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Concepts of Physical Fitness, Active Lifestyles for Wellness, provides readers with self-management skills necessary to adopt a healthy lifestyle. Well, that's cool. All right. I don't know if I've ever quite seen a book like that, right? Like there's lots of gym stuff and like video, like little short videos like, I'll oh, blast five pounds of fat off your abs in two minutes. <laughs> yeah. But there's, I've never seen like a book about the principles behind it. We have Holly Jolly Mad Libs by Roger Price and Leonard Stern. I think they're the original authors of, of Mad Libs of all the Mad Libs series. Oh, cool. This okay. is like Christmas Mad Libs. Oh my God, that's so cool. Send us your best Mad Libs. <laughs> Brian Blank Stephanie with the blank in the blank. Ooh. <laughs> I, I already filled all of those That's blanks. That's a Christmas Mad Lib for you. <laughs> <laughs> I filled all those blanks. Uh, all of those blanks in, sorry. <laughs> Psychology, an introduction by Benjamin Leahy. This looks like a psych textbook as well. Um, a contemporary take on the time-tested classic. Students will master the central concepts of psychology with the new 10th edition of Psychology from Benjamin Leahy. A new chapter on the interplay of nature and nurture highlights the new organization and streamlined content. Yada, yada. That's cool. Um, Scooby Apocalypse, number eight, comic book. This is a Scooby-Doo comic book. Yeah, we talked about this uh, either last week or a couple weeks ago. Really? We talked about this. Yeah, because somebody bought the rest of the Scooby-Doo. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Scooby they Maybe they series. were adding on to their collection. Yeah, I'll just say very quickly, um, and I've read issue eight, phenomenal. Uh, the, the whole series cool. is, is really, really great because it, it gives such a nice twist on, on Scooby-Doo. That's awesome. Yeah, cool. it puts it in the future, makes it a little more intense, a little gritty. It's, I, I like it. And Velma. The cat. Oh yeah, <laughs> the casual angel by Jean Leflambeau. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, the, we we've talked about these books before. It's in a series that somebody's reading. So maybe this is like the next book. With, with his infectious love of storytelling in all forms, his rich characterization, and his unrivaled grasp of thrillingly bizarre, cutting-edge science, Hanu Rajanimi swiftly sets a new benchmark for science fiction in the 21st century. With his third novel, completes the tale of many lives, minds, and gentlemen rogue Jean Leflambeur. Although Jean is the uh, character, excuse me. Yeah. Um, Cool. An Unfinished Nation, A Concise History of the American People by Alan Brinkley. This looks like a history textbook. All right. Like we, maybe we have a college student on our hands or somebody who's just reading a lot of textbooks. Yeah, somebody very self-educated. Yeah, the, that's right. The only, like, An autodidact. <laughs> yeah. Like Asimov said, that's the only real education there is. Known for its clear narrative voice, impeccable scholarship, and affordability... <laughs> Alan, which is important in the world of textbooks, <laughs> Alan Brinkley's The Unfinished Nation offers a concise but comprehensive examination of American history. Balancing social and cultural history with traditional political and diplomatic themes, it tells the story of the diversity and complexity of the United States and the forces that have been able to, to survive and flourish despite division. Western culture! Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Something like that. Now we're just kidding because I don't wave that People who are like all obsessed with Western, Western culture. civilization. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, okay. <laughs> um, in the culture series from Ian M. Banks, we have use of weapons. 
from 2008. Okay. The man known as Cherid Dean Zakalwi was one of special circumstances foremost agents changing the destiny of planets to suit the culture through intrigue, dirty tricks, and military action. Oh, is this by, who's the author? Ian and Banks. Yeah, okay, so this is the culture series. Yeah, that's what I said. (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't hear that part. Oh, I just heard okay. use of weapons, and I thought it was about guns or something. I was like, all right, whoa. whoa. No, I started out saying Ian and Banks. Oh, okay. Anyway, no problem. Sorry, I missed that. Sometimes you have to repeat things for Brian to get it. I'm sorry, Brian. <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to be paying attention to every little thing. Okay, and now it's going to go fairly quickly. In the, uh, in the computers department, we had a stick desktop PC with Rock Chip, Google Chrome. So um, this looks like it is... A computer and a stick or something? Yeah, so these are pretty popular. Which is this? Uh, Chrome Ace- bit stick. Is this an Acer? Asus Chrome or bit. Asus, okay. Asus Chrome bit. How many Asus products have we had? And I still can't pronounce it correctly. <laughs> I have an Asus phone. Uh, yeah. Asus, Christ. <laughs> well, you know, I, even on the most popular tech shows, I still hear them call it Asus. Mm. So, and, and I called it that forever until they did like this ad campaign with Bruce Lee. You know, obviously, posthumous. Well, if it's named after Pegasus, like all bets are off because yeah. it should be Asus or something. Like right. it just sounds weird <laughs> without the peg. Yeah. So, but they say it's Asus. But Asus. A- anyway, um, these are really cool. And okay, this is so like it's a like pr- a Spanish pronunciation. Asus. Like Jesus. Yeah. Like Asus. What if that's it? What if it? What if really they're they're pretending like they're the second coming? Well. Um, I think we should go with that. Okay. I okay. like that. All right. So what is this? It says it's the smallest Chrome OS device. Turn any HDMI display into a computer. Yeah. So pretty much what you have here is a little, it's literally a computer. Yeah. Like it the looks size like a of stick. a flash drive. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, cool. Or around the size of a flash drive. And you plug it into the HDMI port on your you know, monitor or television or something. And then now understand though, it doesn't get powered through the HDMI port. There's a little USB cable that has to run to a USB port. That's hopefully on, on your monitor or TV already. Uh, and then, yeah, it turns it into, you know, Chrome OS, uh, uh, you know, a Chromebook effectively. And, uh, yeah, I mean, these are really cool and they don't just have these for Chrome OS. They have them for windows like Intel makes them for windows. Uh, I mean, they're not like super powerful, so they work far better as a Chrome OS device than as, than as a windows 10 machine, but they do the job. They're not bad. You right can stick on. some Ram in them and you know, they have Bluetooth and all that stuff. It's great. Yeah. That sounds like an interesting thing to try out. Sure. Um, now here's an interesting product. Somebody got EMP bags. These are, so what this is, is a metal aluminum foil kind of looking bag. I don't know if it's actually aluminum foil, but it's some kind of metal layer bag. Yeah, mylar bag that acts as a Faraday cage. And so yep. if an EMP goes off, you can put your electronic devices inside of it and it won't be affected. Or yes. flip side uh-huh. is that you can put your electronic devices and they can't communicate with what's outside. Oh, that's, yeah, that's right. Okay. So, like that's this is very a handy good. trick. Yeah. Like if you like say... You don't want your easy pass or something yeah, to be constantly to be tracking you in your car, mm-hmm. which now we know they do. Yep. Um, you could just toss it in one of these and they're not going to see hide or hair of it. That's a great point. Yeah. yeah. Maybe or that's your what phone, whatever. Yeah. So yeah, this was only thirty four ninety nine, and it gives you like a variety of bags of different sizes that you can put your sh- stuff in. Has 10 pieces. 
has 12 by 18, 8 by 10, and 5 by 7 bags. Super handy. Yeah, that's cool. I think we should get some of those. Actually, I put it in my cart. Yeah, a lot of times I just use aluminum foil, but that, that works great. And now, the, yeah, you can use aluminum foil too. Or um, here's another thing that people sometimes use, RFID shielding nickel copper ripstop fabric. So you can just wrap that around whatever you need to shield. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So... Yeah, it says EMF blocking material, so it's not in the form of a bag, but it's kind of the same idea where it's just like a roll of this fabric that you can put around something. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, just a funny a funny thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of hilarious that the symbol of the conspiracy theorist is the tinfoil is hat. Is the tinfoil hat <laughs> when in... It should be a Mylar bag. <laughs> well, that, well, yeah, right. Yeah, that too. But it's just funny that really tinfoil is in a million ways like the thing that can actually like protect you from the government. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's kind of strange. Like, yeah, they're really maybe not something. In, in hat form. Yeah, maybe but... not for your head, but for everything else you owned. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Get that shit on. I mean, well, that's part of the disinformation campaign, Brian. They're making it look crazy. Well, and and I, then making you think you should put it on your head when you should really be putting it on your cell phone. Well, well, that or let me, you know, I, I, I want to know. Okay, you know the, the God helmet. This is a real thing. Yeah, this is where a, you. This, the God helmet was a magnetic helmet that was designed by some medical researchers, where they could turn it on and stimulate certain parts of the brain with magnets and make the person more religious, basically, or yeah. have a religious experience. Now, I want to know. Does a tinfoil hat, and I mean this dead serious, does a tinfoil hat protect you from that? Because <laughs> well, if it if does... if we look at the, the religiosity of various conspiracy people, I would say no. Like, preppers tend to yeah, be like they're Christians. They're religious, yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, but if, it, if you found out it did... I'd be like, oh, somebody knew, like, like I, I <laughs> yeah, the, cons- the conspiracies of that, of the tinfoil, of the literal tinfoil hat alone would open, would just be wide open because it'd be like, oh, you know, was this predictive programming? Were they making fun of the tinfoil hat ahead of time? Because that would be the thing that could protect you. I, woo, I mean, I know I'm going way out there. <laughs> yeah, but- no, I could totally picture that. That'd be a brilliant disinformation campaign. Mm. What is it? CoIntelPro? That's, or something like that. Yeah. Or, or PSYOP. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I had a client once who what like worked in the financial services sector and I was doing like a podcast intro for his financial podcast and he wasn't like in the prepper world or anything like that but we're talking on the phone about the project and he, he saw something about bitcoin on my website and he goes, "Stephanie, are you a prepper? Are you wearing a tinfoil hat right now?" <laughs> <laughs> it was the funniest thing. That's great. <laughs> Uh, so somebody got a wireless keyboard, Gossin Ultra Thin All-in-One Metal Bluetooth Keyboard. That looks cool. Nice. Yep. Very nice. Always hand- handy to have, and you can be had for 30 bucks. so that's pretty cheap. Love it. Uh, care- in the food department now, we're into, uh, yeah, Carrington For- Farms Organic Extra Virgin Coconut Oil, 54 ounces. Good so stuff. it's always useful to have a big-ass jar of coconut oil, because you can put it well, frankly, you can use it for sex lube if you're not using latex condoms. Works but great, even there's great. some controversy about that. We've talked about it on the show before. Go back and listen to season one. Um, <laughs> but it's good for everything. Like you put it on your skin. You can put it on food. You can eat it. You can fuck it. Yeah, that's the coconut oil. So thank you very much. And it's pretty relatively cheap. sixteen ninety nine for that. Somebody, okay, now we're into the Kindle department. You're going to love this, Brian. There were a bunch of Batman books. Batman books? Yep. There was, a, well, and right, a bunch on. of other books. Let me guess, one like. of them was Nightfall. Nope. 
Oh, wait, I don't even think that's in the Kindle store. Okay, keep going. No, I think they're comic books. So oh. Batman, Harley Quinn, 1999 to present, or 1999, Harley Quinn, 1999, number one. Nice. Yeah, so this looks like a, it's Kindle and Comixology. It looks like a comic book. Yeah, well, Amazon bought Comixology oh. uh, last year. And okay, what was Comixology before Comixology that? was kind of your premier digital comic book distributor, uh, okay, which I love cool. digital comic books. Yeah, yeah, you have um, a lot of them. Oh, yeah. You have them on your phone. It's crazy. <laughs> um, and yeah, so Comixology, yeah, anytime you see that, you know, Okay, so that totally get gets rid of the concept of like limited print editions of comics, right? Because you can buy, this is like a first edition, like number one comic or whatever, mm-hmm. and- you can buy the comic book for seventy nine ninety nine, or you can buy the Kindle version for five ninety nine. Yeah, absolutely. It, it it really does kill that whole. I mean, potentially the collector's market for everybody else. You know, right? Yeah, and which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Um. Also, in the Batman Adventures series, we got Batman Adventures nineteen ninety two number twelve from Kindle and Comicsology, Bat- and it has Batgirl on the front. Nice. A special Batgirl centric issue. Now, it's important that both of these comics that you're mentioning, mm-hmm. um, if if memory serves, Batman Adventures, I know for for certain, mm-hmm. are based upon the exceptionally popular Batman the Animated Series. Um, like, these are kind of continuation or side stories from that cartoon, which is widely held as being the greatest cartoon ever made. Mm. Um, and it really is that good. Uh, I mean, I, I thought the Animated Series, or Superman the Animated Series, was was better mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm a bigger batman fan so i appreciate all this uh, but yeah great great comics there right on and listen to how sexy this is a special batgirl centric issue barbara gordon attends a costume party dressed as her hero and secret identity batgirl unfortunately for her poison ivy and harley quinn also show up at the same party and they're dressed for business oh we wonder if there's any hla in this one we need to do a role play oh yeah (laughs) i think i know who might have bought these because there's somebody who is telling us this week who i know is a fan of the show who who said that she really is getting into poison ivy and harley quinn comics lately oh yeah well especially in like in recent uh, DC history. We'll yeah, say, DC I guess they get, they're now like to, they're lovers, right? In many ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they're kind of, you know, either explicitly or uh, kind of implicitly. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's it's a part of it. You know, they're kind of a tag team. Yeah. And I, I think that's hot. Hot damn. <laughs> the Batman Adventures 1992 number 28. Gotham City Councilmen are going crazy while Dr. Heimlich attempts to treat the Joker's mental illness. Duh. That sounds interesting. Um, and then finally, we've got a couple more books. The Blue the blue Tent Sky, How the Left's War on Guns Cost Me My Son and My Freedom by Brian A- D. Aiken. Yikes. Wow. In 2010, I've never heard of this book before. Um, in 2010, Brian Aiken was sentenced to seven years in prison for possessing firearms that he legally owned. He lost everything, including custody of his son, for a crime that he did not commit. After spending four months behind bars, Governor Chris Christie demanded his release. This is his story. That's interesting. Wow. So this guy was like basically falsely accused or innocent, and he got his son taken away and got locked up. Yikes. Very wow. unfortunate. Yeah. I'm curious about that. Anyway, um, The Atheist Manifesto, second edition by, yes. Chris, by Christopher Hitchens. Wait, The Atheist? Ma- it's by Hitchens? Yep. 
The Atheist Manifesto by Christopher Hitchens. That's so weird. Because there's a couple books called that, right? Yeah, because yeah. Michelle Onfray yeah, writes uh, that's right. the Atheist Manifesto yep. as well, and hit, that I haven't read Hitchens' Atheist Manifesto, but Michelle Onfray. I Onfray's think actually is last week we talked about somebody who bought Michelle Onfray's version of that book. Okay, yeah, that's a great edition, but I'm sure Hitchens is good too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the second edition it says has been editorially corrected in response to user feedback. Always nice when they take that into account. In the Atheist Manifesto, Christopher Hitchens presents his case against religion and for mental liberty. Hitchens argues that religion is not merely unnecessary for morality, but is actually antithetical to it. In his unwaveringly logical analysis, Hitchens demands the moral high ground claimed by religion and constructs a philosophical platform of rationality, morality, and liberty for all humankind. Christopher Hitchens passed away, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, a few years ago. Yeah. He was one of the big, big three atheists, right? Yeah, he was right up there with Dawkins and you Sam know, Harris. Else. Yeah. yeah. Richard um, Carrier. Yeah. Real Descent, A Libertarian Sets Fire to the Index Card of Allowable Opinion by Thomas Woods. <laughs> with a foreword by Ron Paul. Oh. And there's an audible. Why are you groaning? That's got to be. Uh, uh, all right, whatever. You I think, haven't I haven't what? read it yet, but okay. And actually, wow, Tom Woods narrated this book. Oh, good for him. That's interesting. He made, he did an author narrated audiobook, which I always love author narrated audiobooks. It says nothing makes traditional left and right kiss and make up faster than when they're faced with an articulate libertarian. Avert your eyes from this dangerous extremist citizen. Government is composed of wise public servants who innocently pursue the common good. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I mean, was he able to like uh, You don't know. like you don't like the style of Tom Woods because he's socially conservative and like right wing? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just it's tough not to see in a lot of his writing. Not saying that he does it directly all the time, but I just feel like this guy shames women right and left. I mean, I, I just like I have a lot. Yeah, of- there was one article that he wrote that it's was like in defense of slut shaming, and that just really turned me off. Yeah, I, but I mean, he's a nice man. I went on a cruise with him. I've met him. I mean, yeah, he's nice enough. <laughs> you know. He, yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. A, like, a, I'm Aubrey's not. Albrecht's a mental giant. Right. You know the. The right wing stuff doesn't appeal to me. It may, it obviously appeals to some people, and they bought his book through our link. So thank you very much yes, for doing that. You. I hope you enjoyed the book. I mean, give us a review if you want. Yeah. I'm always like, I love to hear book reviews of any book, whether I agree with it or not, whether I agree with it ninety percent and disagree with ten percent. You know, I'm I'm curious to hear your take on it and if you thought it was good. All right, just real quick, mm-hmm. like, because you said earlier, and I think this is totally valid, you know, to read books by people that maybe you don't want yeah, to agree with. Yeah, I think with. it's a great idea. And I, I agree. I totally agree. And I actually spend most of my time reading books <laughs> on things that I don't really agree with. Yeah. Um, I but, listen to podcasts that I disagree with, too. It can be very infuriating sometimes, but I think it's important. <laughs> yeah. Let, let, let's just say that the Tom Woods belongs to something called the Austrian School of Economics. Yeah. And let's just say I don't really think there's been anything new out of that since the 70s. And so I'm not. Mm. Well, I'm, there's a like they're very conservative by nature. Like they want to go back to like a time in the past. So that makes that kind of makes sense that they'd be conservative. Sure. And, all right. So then I've read all you know, I've read I've read Hazlitt. I've read Leland B. Yeager. I've read, uh, uh, you know, I've read the Rothbard, Hoppe. You know, I've read some of Tom Woods' books. I mean, mm-hmm. I've read, you know, Bob Murphy. So 
if there's no advancement, no going forward, you know, in the, you know, yeah. and, and I've read Kinsella's work, which I think Kinsella's mm. work is important. I think he's moved it forward, but he has also not put out much new lately. I right. think in the last five years, maybe. Right. So, um, yeah. So that I'm aware of. I'm sorry if you listen, because I know he listens to some of my shows sometimes. So he might be listening to this. Sure. Right. Hi, Steph. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I was going to say, like, I, th- I think that's a totally fair critique of the, um, of the, uh, the Austrian the Austrians, thank you. The Austrian School of Economics. I think that they are so busy sometimes trying to hold the line or go back to the basic principles that, like Ludwig von Mises and um, Eugene von von Baumbach and uh, I can <laughs> never say Menger, his name. Karl Menger, yes, Frederick Bastiat, yes, all those famous economists. That, like all these people laid out, they're so busy trying to go back to those basic principles that I don't think they have time to juggle like advancing the field with new material sure so i i think that is a totally fair critique yeah so i just want to i just want to say i'm not being contradictory or a Mm -hmm. hypocrite yep in that i don't read those i really don't feel and and maybe i could be corrected but i have not seen and i have lots of lots of quote-unquote i guess i'll say acquaintances i have lots of acquaintances that uh subscribe to the austrian school and i'm not seeing anything new out of them i haven't seen anything new out of them for five years uh, hell longer like mm-hmm. so i don't have any high hopes but anyway please continue fair enough okay um so also in the kindle department we got delta green tales from failed anatomies by Ooh. dennis detwiller and robin d laws that sounds interesting delta green tales from failed anatomies is a collection of stories by award-winning author and game designer dennis detwiller These tales of cosmic terror and personal horror span the life of Delta Green, the desperate organization that Detwiller helped create, a group of men and women who have seen the awful truths of reality and struggle to keep those realities at bay as long as they can. Wow. Crazy. And so this is actually stories written like over a really long span of time from 1942 up until 2015. Oh, what? oh no, no, no. They take place in those times. I'm sorry. No, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Excuse my ignorance here. Get late. Uh, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> well, that looks really interesting. That sounds like a cool little sci-fi anthology. Um, okay. Now we're into the office supplies group. Here, here we go, Brian. At a glance, paper wall calendar 2017 yearly non-erasable version. So this is like a, a wall calendar where you hang it on the wall and it's one sheet of paper and it shows the entire 12 months of 2017 all laid out for you. Nice. Yep. That's cool. That can be useful, especially when you're like trying to cross off every day that you work out or something like that or um it you know it doesn't give you much space to write a lot in each day of the year but i guess you could write maybe pencil in appointments like a few a day or something like that it's kind of cool to have um field piece heated diode refrigerant leak detector and now this was um I, I think this is one of these sensors that you put next to a refrigerator or an air conditioner to see if it's leaking coolant it triggers it triggers on CFCs, HFCs, HCFCs, and blends. Cool. More sensitive to some refrigerants than others. That's cool. Because, I mean, how are you going to know if your refrigerator is leaking coolant? That's a re- actually a really good question. And isn't Freon, like, kind of toxic or something? Yeah. Yep. All right. We got a Fluke 80, a.k.a. thermocouple adapter, whatever the fuck that is. Uh, yeah, I think we can move on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know what this does. I'm not going to speculate. Thanks to our corporate sponsorship. Yay, corporate sponsor. Um, this is kind of cool. We got a Klein Tools Tradesman Pro Organizer 10-inch tote, which is like a, basically a tool bag. Nice. And it looks really nice. It looks like it has tons of pockets for every tool you could possibly imagine. So you could feel like a complete man, 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 with your tools and your man. Now you're a man. Yep. Now you're a man. <laughs> man, man, man. Man, man, man. Oh, you do it so much better because you are a man. You're a, a man, man, man. 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 <laughs> um, Intermatic 7-day 30-amp SPST electronic astronomic time switch. This is like a time travel device. <laughs> Automatically switches loads according to a preset weekly schedule. Oh, okay. So this is a glorified timer like that turns your lights on and off. But it actually does way more than that. It's like controlling more heavy-duty switches. Got it. Like on a whole circuit. That's cool. Um, and then we have the Miole LED power supply transformer output. Um, no idea what that does, but power supply transformer output. <laughs> Powering something. Okay. Something. Yeah. You know, our corporate sponsor is very busy with building circuits and repairing <laughs> garage doors that we always mistake for other things. So we shouldn't even try to tell what they're doing. Oh, and that's it. That's very anticlimactic because we don't know. <laughs> we don't know exactly what those last few things are for, but we, there were some great books this week, I'll ha- I will say. Oh, phenomenal. Yeah. I'm I very... guess that's what people do after Christmas when they already got their presents. They're like, okay, now I can get to the books I really want to read. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's if I had a vacation. That'd be a big part of it. That's right. A lot of reading. All right. So our website, sexandsciencehour.com. Go there. Share our shows with your friends. Soundcloud.com slash sexandsciencehour. Twitter.com slash, well, sexsciencehour. Yeah, that throws at, you for a loop. At sexsciencehour. Yeah, because we couldn't fit the end in there or something. There was already There's some kind of reason. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, join us next Friday for a whole new episode. And we'll see you in 2017. We'll see you in the future, man. Man, 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 next year. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in. This has been Sex and Science Hour. Uh, Stuff.sexandsciencehour.com for your shopping needs, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much.